up, Sassnacks? It's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnack Files. This week, I am discussing Scotland by Land, Air, and Sea, the sixth episode from Men in Kilts. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassnack Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassnack Files on both Facebook and Instagram so you can keep up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander, Season 7 and 8, Blood of My Blood, the second season of Men and Kilts, and anything Diana Gabaldon cooks up. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my thoughts on Scotland by Land, Air, and Sea. This episode was a little bit different as far as production approach because most of what Sam and Graham talk about in Men and Kilts are historically related things. And this episode was all about the landscape and the beauty of exploring Scotland, which obviously I'm a huge fan of. We see the Scottish landscape in Outlander, especially the first three seasons, very regularly. I mean, we see it from season three on, but it's not recognizably Scotland, I guess. So to be able to spend an entire episode of Men in Kilts really appreciating everything that Scotland has to offer as a country was pretty awesome, in my opinion. Sam and Graham make sure to point out the organization of the country of Scotland. You've got three different regions, the highlands, the islands, and the lowlands. I think in this episode, they primarily spend a lot of time talking about and spending time on the islands, although they do go to the highlands whenever they visit Loch Ness. They make a good point that back in the day when clans still ruled Scotland, The clans that were settled along the coast and in the islands were probably some of the most powerful clans that you would encounter, primarily because the biggest and easiest method for travel back in that time was by sea. Whenever we talk about some of the clans that lived on the huge locks in the highlands and on the islands, just keep in mind that those were extremely beneficial points to occupy. They were very strategic And a lot of times that equated to power and control over other clans and people. So they travel by ferry a couple of different times over the course of this episode. And Sam absolutely loved ferries. You can see him getting giddy every time they get on a ferry, which I think is so freaking cute. But I felt like we saw a little bit more of a lighthearted feel. They didn't do interviews and things like they do in some of the other episodes. And so I think they were really in their element here just kind of chilling, being one with the land, getting to explore a little bit. And yeah, I just felt like it was a really good episode. It was one that when I saw the episode title initially, I was like, hmm, that kind of seems like a catch-all episode, like they didn't know where to put everything, so they just put it all in there. And there was a couple of things throughout the episode that I was like, hmm, that wasn't a good transition or whatever. But for the most part, I actually really did like it, primarily because they visited the Island of Sky for most of the things that they did in this episode. So when they first open up, there were a lot of Sam and Graham shenanigans this week. Whenever they're in the van and 
the midges are even in the van. We talked about midges last week and how much they bug Sam, but we're continuing on with that path. He was just swatting at them in the van, like could not get away from them. And then I thought it was hilarious that grandma's like, oh, one's on your balls. (laughs) And Sam like pretended he was going to punch himself and then accidentally did whack himself a little bit. I thought that was really funny. So that really set the tone for the relaxed, joking, laid back nature of this episode, I felt like. So as they're on their ferry over to the Isle of Lewis, they begin to kind of talk a little bit about the mythology surrounding the Scottish islands. Sam undoubtedly does not tell this story very well. So I'm unsure how much of it he made up versus how much of it he heard and then just couldn't remember, etc. Like, was it a game of telephone where he just couldn't remember quite how it went? But he tells this story that apparently is actually known throughout Scottish, Irish, and Norse mythology about this old hag, a giant, which Celtic mythology does revolve around giants a lot. That's Rumored to be how standing stones got to be where they are, the giants put them up. But this giant woman, woman giant, however you want to say that, would walk across the land of Scotland and drop these stones as she went out of her basket. The myth is that where each of these stones fell, it became a mountain or an island. And so when we see this huge scattering of islands off the west coast of Scotland, there are a few on the east coast, but not as many in like up to the north. So when we see this huge scattering of islands across Scotland, that's kind of was the ancient explanation for how they got there and why they are there. 900 islands seemed like a lot. That's what Sam said. And Graham seemed just blown away. He was like, there's no freaking way that there's 900 islands. There are actually 790 islands off the coast of Scotland, but only 94 of them are inhabited, according to my friend Google. So Sam was definitely in the ballpark. Graham was probably thinking inhabited islands, but just a few of the islands that they mentioned are Gia, Aaron, Barra, Harris, Lewis, North and South Uist. Benbecula, Skye, Staffa, Iona, Rona, St. Kilda, Egg, Mull, and Muck. Those are some of the inhabited islands. I've been to a couple of them. Let's see. I've been to Skye, Iona, and Mull. They're all beautiful. Iona is super tiny. I'll talk about Iona a little bit later. There are tons of them, like literally, and some of them are super tiny, and very remote, and that's why only a few of them are actually inhabited and that you can visit. A lot of them are kind of like the Galapagos Islands where you go and you do like research or uh, for geology or biology reasons or whatever, or you kind of just make your way around them as you head out to the ocean. The first thing that they actually chat about in this Scotland by Land, Air, and Sea episode is Loch Ness. I will say that Loch Ness is probably one of the most commercialized parts of Scotland, largely because of the Loch Ness Monster. It is a huge body of water. I just don't think that people can comprehend how large Loch Ness is until they see it in person. The first time that I saw Loch Ness, I went on a Loch cruise. We started out 
uh, about halfway up the lock and we went all the way up to Urquhart Castle and then turned around and came back. And I was like, oh, that's not bad. Like, it's really beautiful, but, you know, your typical cruise, I think it took like 45 minutes-ish. The second time that I went to Loch Ness, I didn't actually do a lock cruise, but we started at the furthest point of the lock where Inverness is, and we drove all the way up the lock and around the lock, and it took us like probably a solid 30 minutes, if not more, to drive all the way up one side of the lock. It's huge and it's super deep in parts. So you can understand how this myth of the Loch Ness Monster continues to hold a place in pop culture today because it's almost impossible to explore all of the lock because there are so many caves really deep down. Whenever you're out on the lock, the water is super dark and brown because it has a lot of peat and tannins in the water. So it looks almost black. I think the only time that I've seen it look even remotely blue is on a day when I was there and the sky did not have a cloud in it and it was reflecting off the water. But if you actually look down into the water, you can't even see fish or anything because it's so dark with all the tannins in the water. So the Loch Ness Monster originally got its start way back in the day when St. Columba came to visit the Celts that were there in the Inverness area to try to convert them to Christianity. There recently, during that time, they had had several of their children and fellow village members attacked and drawn into the water by this monster, and it was really starting to be a problem. So, While St. Columba was there, he wasn't a saint at that point, he was just Columba, it happened again. This monster came up out of the lock to grab someone to pull it back in, and Columba supposedly held up his cross and banished it back into the water, and it actually went. And so that is the story that people tell to this day of the Loch Ness Monster and also how Christianity began its growth in Scotland. Now, St. Columba and all of his fellow, um, I don't know whether you want to call them monks, were actually based on the Isle of Iona at the Abbey there. And that was actually a very prominent place for pilgrimage across Europe. People would go to the Isle of Iona off the coast of Scotland to pilgrimage. And there was actually a point in time, I believe it was after Columba, where the monks at the abbey actually petitioned the Pope to like get some time knocked off of people's purgatory if they visited Iona. <laughs> like they did a pilgrimage there. And I'm like, oh my God, this is so crazy. But Iona is a super cool island. It's a tiny little thing. There's one track that runs all the way down the island. So you have to take a ferry over from Mull. And then it drops you off in like the main little village where there are a couple of shops and a restaurant. And then you walk up the hill. There's an old nunnery there which is not a brothel, (laughs) not a brothel. It's an actual nunnery where nuns lived. And then you continue up the road past the inn there where you can 
grab lunch or dinner or whatever and stay if you're staying on Iona. And just past that is the Abbey. It's very beautifully preserved. There are some tombs in there, great stained glass. It's a very small fee and you can get an audio tour and kind of walk around and explore. It's got really old graveyards and it's on the Isle of Iona there where St. Columba actually passed. I'm not sure if he's still buried there, but also St. Oren, who is mentioned in the very first episode of Outlander with the old Scottish saying, and the earth went over Oren's eyes. St. Oren was actually martyred and buried alive. He is also buried on Iona, along with several other notable saints, because like I said, this was a very prominent place in the Christian faith for a very long time. If you get a chance, it's kind of remote and you have to kind of take a tour to get out there because it's very far away, but it's a really cool place, so I recommend it. And that's kind of all ties in with the Loch Ness Monster. Now, Sam brings up a very good point in this episode as well when he's talking about how he thinks that the Loch Ness Monster is actually a Kelpie. And when he said this, I was like, you know what? That's actually probably pretty accurate because Kelpies are also known as water horses. We touch on them a a little bit in the Outlander universe, but the Kelpies are a very popular myth that you hear a lot about in Scotland and in Scottish culture. They're these mythical creatures that live in the deepest, darkest parts of the loch, and they kind of rise up and like drag people down and they'll either eat them or steal your soul. There are several variations of the myth of the Kelpies, but they shapeshift. So they look like these beautiful horses up on the land. And then the minute they like taunt you to climb on their backs, they take off and they run into the water. And so Sam's like, if they're these shape-shifting creatures, the Loch Ness Monster could easily be a Kelpie. I love all these theories that people have on the Loch Ness Monster, what it is, what it isn't. If you're looking at it scientifically, a lot of people think that it's actually a large sturgeon or some sort of eel that people see rising up out and creating these these waves and stuff in the loch. But the most popular form is a plesiosaur, which in Outlander, if you've read the first book, that's what Claire sees whenever she encounters the Loch Ness Monster. It's an old dinosaur. It's the one with the really long neck that sticks out of the water and it has the four kind of diamond-shaped fins. That's a plesiosaur. So whenever you're buying stuff with Nessie at Loch Ness or whatever, that it's a plesiosaur that you're seeing on the front of that t-shirt or bag or hat or whatever you're buying. And they also have a plaster plesiosaur out in front of the little visitor center there that you can take a picture with. And obviously, I took obligatory selfies, but it's pretty cool. Um, And that's the most popular kind of myth. Also something along the lines of Kelpies that you can do in Scotland is visit the Kelpies structure, which I have to say is probably one of the coolest pieces of art that I have ever seen. And I'm not a huge art person, but these are massive metal structures that are the heads of two horses. And they have like these holes in them where they're placed together, intentional holes, and they light up at night and they they can turn a myriad of different colors, but most often you see them either blue or red. And we had driven by them several times and I had always wanted to stop because they're in a park, but you can see them from the highway because they're absolutely huge. 
And I thought the last time that we went to Scotland, I wasn't going to get to go again because I didn't specifically get any tours that listed the Kelpies as one of the stopping points. But our lovely tour guide, he got us out of the city. We had to go towards Sterling to get where we were going. They have these comfort stops along the way. And so he chose to have our first stop be at the Kelpies so that we could get a coffee at the little gift shop and use the bathroom and take pictures at this iconic Scottish landmark because it really is gorgeous. And if you go outside of Edinburgh or Glasgow up into the Highlands at all, you will probably see the Kelpies at some point, but if you get a chance to stop, I do recommend it. That's Water Horses, Kelpies, the Loch Ness Monster, what have you. When they're on Loch Ness, they have a conversation with Gary Lewis, who they quote unquote encounter rowing his boat. (laughs) There's some cool behind the scenes little information about that in Clanlands. If you haven't read it, check it out. Graham makes a comment. This land tells a story of its people. It's a very poetic line. It's one that made the promotional trailer for Men in Kilts. But Gary kind of goes into an explanation of why that line might make sense for Scotland as a country more than, say, the United States, Germany, or France, or whatever. So the Celts and the Gaels inhabited parts of Scotland around the same time period. They had very different cultures. I think the Celts have more of a prominence as things continued to progress and Scotland became more of a civilized nation. But the Gaels kind of believed in being one with the earth. They didn't believe in ownership of land. In a lot of ways, they believed that the land owned them. When you think about it, the land has the power to take and to give. You live and died by the land back then. Scotland is a very harsh and unforgiving environment, especially when you don't have the everyday creature comforts of central air and heating. In a really harsh winter, a lot of people probably died. And whenever you didn't get enough rain, your crops didn't do well. And a lot of people probably starved to death. So the land giveth and the land taketh away. And the Gales were very much aware of that kind of mentality. Even today, whenever you look at Scotland, Scottish people have a connection to the land that a lot of people don't have with their mother countries. So I kind of really liked having that put in front of you to kind of ponder. In this episode, I think Graham also gave another awesome piece of advice, which I'm going to repeat in case you guys missed it when you were watching Men in Kilts. He said... Take it slowly when you go through Scotland because there's so much to stop and enjoy. And I really think that Scotland is a country that is very suited to the road trip mentality. It's not like going from place to place to place and kind of just driving to get there like many Americans do. Everybody drives in the United States. Scotland, whenever you road trip, it's as much about what you see along the way as what you're going to do when you get where you're going. One place that my mom and I actually spent a couple of nights at on one of our tours this past time, we went to the town of Oban. Sam and Graham in Clanlands actually stayed at a hotel near Oban called Tay Cragen Hotel. It's actually a repurposed 
building that now has luxury accommodations, and it sits right on the shore of Loch Awe, which is the longest freshwater lake in Scotland and was home to many different clans in the heyday of the clans. It has four different castles on its banks, Kilchurn, Frauk, Eilean, Inisconnell, and Fincharn castles. So all of these different clans had their strongholds on this lock because think about it, the longest freshwater lock in Scotland has a lot of appeal. I mean, that's a huge water source. That's a huge source of food. It would make sense that clans like the McGregors and the Stuarts and the Campbells had castles there. But Oban itself is a nice little port town. We stayed at a bed and breakfast there. There's plenty of different food options and shopping and stuff. And you can get a ferry from Oban to a lot of the different islands on the western side of Scotland. So if you're wanting to kind of explore the islands, but you're not sure where to start and you don't want to take a tour, I would definitely find some transportation to Oban and then take advantage of the ferries going in and out of Oban. Also, Oban is home to my favorite whiskey, Oban. Oban 14-year-old, there's just something about it. It's so good. But again, I do not claim to be a whiskey connoisseur. It's just one that always hits my palate very well. I didn't get a chance to stop at the Oban Distillery, but it's right in the middle of town and I really wish I had. I got a picture outside of it, but I did not get to go in. So that was kind of disappointing. But there's also a old structure on top. I can't remember what it's called. I want to say it's like the fort or something like that, but it's this round structure. I initially thought that it was unfinished, but it actually is just supposed to be like that. It's completely round. It's built into the side. You can hike up it, but man, is it a hike. We hiked all the way up and it is straight up. Like I do, it's not for the faint of heart. (laughs) It's not a small climb or a couple of stairs. It's serious elevation. (laughs) But there's a nice park up there. And then on the outside of the structure, there are benches that you can sit in and it views the harbor and you can watch the ferries come and go and you can basically see the entire town of Oban. So it's beautiful views. I would have stayed up there longer, honestly, but the midges were starting to come out and I was sweating and totally done by the time we got up there. (laughs) From here, I want to talk a little bit about the Isles of Glencoe. So these are not like the islands that... Sam and Graham explore or that we talked about earlier. These are little islands that are in the middle of a lock near Glencoe. There's a tradition here. A lot of the islands of Glencoe are named and they have specific purposes. So you have Eileen Nabane, which is the Isle of Covenant or Isle of Ratification. This is where men would go after settling their differences on Eileen Comride. I butchered that, I know. But that's the Isle of Discussion. So if there was a feud going on, the McDonald's were the primary clan that ruled over Glencoe. So the McDonald would send men to the Isle of Discussion to work out their differences. And then after they worked out their differences on the Isle of Discussion, they would go over to the Isle of the Covenant or Isle of Ratification and agree to whatever terms were set forth and 
sign the, the dotted line, basically, and I'm sure have a wee dram. And then the other prominent island in Glencoe is Eilean Mound, which is the island of the dead. And this is traditionally where people would have been buried. So there are over 300 McDonald graves on the Island of the Dead, along with several McInneses, Campbells, and Stewarts. And each of the graves are facing east in traditional Christian fashion towards Jerusalem. This is kind of one of those things where the topography of Scotland's landscape brings forth some of these unusual traditions. So I was unsure where to put this, whether I should put it in the tradition section or the Scotland by land, air, and sea, it seemed appropriate to put here, but I thought that that was kind of cool. And as Sam and Graham are exploring this island in clan lands, you really start to see a little bit of the land having an effect on the camaraderie between these two guys because Graham, by the end of this day, he was like completely hangry when they started out and he was grumpy that they had to get in kayaks to get out to the island. And then as they're kind of standing on the island and just taking in the quiet solitude and peace of the island and kind of the lock that surrounds them, Graham just turns to Sam and he thinks to himself, like, I'm really glad I had this experience here with you today. You can learn a lot by the graves on the island because you can tell who had higher status according to who their graves were. So sometimes you'll just walk by and you'll see like bones just laying on top of the ground. So the deeper you were buried, the higher your status was in society, like the longer people cared to take to dig your grave. And if you were a nobody, you just got laid on top of the ground to sink back into the earth, basically. One particular headstone, because some of the headstones you can still read, and people just had such great epitaphs on their gravestones back in the day. This one caught my eye. It says, my glass has run, yours is running. Be wise in time, your hour is coming. And I wonder how much time people took to like pick what their epitaph would be on their headstones. That's very prophetic and profound. It makes you pause and think, yeah, I'm in the ground and you won't be far behind me. So be careful with what you do with the time that you have left. Back to Men in Kilts, they actually spend quite a bit of time on the Isle of Skye in this episode. The first thing they do on Skye is biking the Kerrang. Not something that I recommend. Again, not for the faint of heart. If you are not in the best shape of your life, do not attempt it. The Kerrang is freaking huge, my friends, and it has gorgeous views on the top. Like if you go to Sky, you have to go to the Kerrang because it is probably one of the most iconic pieces of Scotland that's out there. At least two or three times a week, I see the Kerrang pop up on my little Microsoft screensaver that pops up at work as it filters through. And I've seen like three or four different variations of the Kerrang because it's such a bold landscape feature that overlooks the sea. It's super high up and super windy. So take a jacket because most of the time it's freezing up there. But yeah, I don't recommend trying to bike up it. And then from there, they decided to take a dip in the fairy pools, which dipping in the fairy pools is a thing. I did see people doing it when I was there. However, and I'm not saying they're liars, okay, because I did not see all of the fairy pools. I did see about a mile's worth of the fairy pools, though, from the road back, and then I walked forward, 
There was not a tree in sight, and they're kind of out in the middle of nowhere with a huge mountain in the background. Um, the Black Quillens, I think is what they're called. Yeah, not anything like where Sam and Graham supposedly go s- swimming in the fairy pools. That really did not look like anything that I saw while I was in the fairy pools, so I kind of have to call them out on that. I feel like this was a little bit of movie magic gone wrong. Like, they fully intended to go to the fairy pools, and they knew that was one of the big draws of Sky, so they felt like they had to say they were there, but I really just don't think that that's where they were. <laughs> so I'll leave that there. They talk about climbing mountains. They take a seaplane around Ben Lomond to kind of look at that, which it's a really ominous looking mountain just kind of standing out there on its own and the low-hanging clouds just make it look really foreboding. Sam has actually climbed Ben Lomond along with 27 other Monroes. So Monroe-ing, like to Monroe, is a thing to do in Scotland. There are 282 Monroes and a Monroe is any mountain that's over 3,000 feet. Scotland is a country full of people that love the outdoors. People just go out for the weekend and hike up a 3,000 foot mountain. So if you want to go hike a mountain in Scotland, check out one of the 282 Monroes. Um, Sam actually did Ben Nevis at the very end of his book, Waypoints. I do not believe that that was counted in his 27 because I believe that that was done like his hiking of the West Highland Way. He did that after they filmed Men in Kilts. So now he's done at least 28, which is really cool. I mean, considering there are 282, it's like a fraction. But when you look at the fact that they're freaking mountains and he's climbed 28 of them, that's pretty impressive, I think. From here, we go to abseiling, the final thing that they're going to accomplish in their Scotland by land, air, and sea episode. I must say, I was kind of judging Sam hardcore for making Graham do this. They did it at Kilt Rock, which was my mom's favorite part of the Isle of Skye, that and the Kerrang, which they're both very beautiful. But Kilt Rock is named so because it has these crags in the cliffs that they look like the pleats of a kilt. So it's called Kilt Rock. But they did abseiling, which is basically like repelling, only slightly repelling. Not repelling down the whole cliff, but they repelled a good chunk down. Graham is terrified of heights, like absolutely terrified. I can somewhat see where he's coming from. I don't have a fear of heights. I have a fear of falling because I'm a very clumsy person by nature and I can trip over a pebble. I kid you not. Like I have tripped and fallen on my face over like an inch ledge. Like I caught my foot and fell. So that's where I come from. Like roller coasters and Tower of Terror at Disney World and all of that. Like I absolutely love it because it's a controlled environment. But when I'm hiking and things like it is me conquering a fear to climb up a rock. There's a picture I shared on my Sassanac Files social media a couple of years ago where I went to Blowing Rock, which is um, where Diana got the inspiration for Fraser's Ridge. And there is a hike out there that you can do where the last bit of it, you climb up on top of this rock and it is like straight down. It has the most amazing view. But if you make the wrong move, like my friend dropped her water bottle and it clanked 
and clanked and clanked and clanked and like echoed down as it went. And I'm like, yeah, if that had been you, you'd be dead. Okay. So I understand where grandma's coming from. 100%. And the fact that Sam was teasing him and making him like, oh my God, don't fall. And like all of that, when he was clearly just barely holding on to his sanity through all of this, I feel like Sam crossed the line and I was hardcore like, don't be a jackass. But then once Graham actually started doing it and Sam like is gnawing on his knuckle and he looks at the camera and says, I actually feel really bad. You could tell that he meant that. So I forgave him. But I know that Sam is like a very adventurous spirit and he's kind of up for anything. So I try to keep that in mind on these episodes that he just enjoys razzing Graham because Graham is like the polar opposite in that way. Like he has his comfortable space and that's where he wants to be. He doesn't like to kind of push the envelope like Sam does. I think that's what makes them so great together that Graham's like, bro, it's okay to chill a little bit. And Sam's like, it's okay to get out of your comfort zone every once in a while. That push and pull creates this relationship that it's so fun to watch on the screen and to read in book form, to be honest. So anyway, where they ended up abseiling at Kilt Rock is 100 meters above sea level. So that's about 300 feet above the ocean, which is kind of crazy. But I am glad that Sam was so like adventurous about his portion of it because I feel like for Graham, uh, we were so focused on, oh my God, like I feel so bad that he's having to do that. Like he was shaking so bad, guys. And you could tell that he was just focusing on getting it done. Whereas Sam actually took the time to look at the view and he was like oh my god this is amazing and we could like see his gopro view from his camera and they had the drone shot of him abseiling i'm glad that we did get that because we got to see the whole point of them going abseiling like if it had just been the camera solely zoomed in on them while they did this terrifying thing and we didn't actually see what they had the opportunity to see i don't feel like we could have appreciated it as much but sam sam just did it like lickety split he's like yep here i go off the edge of a cliff boom 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 and then climb back up so easy and Graham like I think once it was done and once he could kind of take a deep breath and like sit down and watch Sam do what he was doing he was like you know what that is really freaking cool but in the moment it was absolutely horrifying for him he was like I can't do this I felt really bad for Graham but I think that he was glad that he did it in the end which is a bonus so that pretty much wraps up what I have for this week's episode of Men in Kilts. The witty one-liner of the week, it's a bit of a conversation. When Graham is getting ready to go abseiling and he asks the guy, Matt, he says, will it involve me looking at his ass if I go first? And the guy says, only if you want to. And then Graham <laughs> looks at the camera and said, I've seen Outlander. I don't need to see anymore. <laughs> I love that. Graham is forever giving Sam a hard time about how many people have seen his butt after watching Outlander because I think at least once every four episodes or so, we get a Jamie butt shot. <laughs> and then the shenanigans of the week were hands down when they were playing around punching the midges and then Sam accidentally whacked himself. <laughs> that was funny. I laughed at that one. 
Alrighty, so no real new Outlander news this week. We continue the countdown. We are almost two months out from the release of the first part of season seven. That will be the first eight episodes for those of you that have not been keeping up with the newest media releases. So that will be June 16th when that's premiering. They released a little bit of a behind the scenes thing where they're talking about who's most likely to crack a joke on set. And this isn't really anything new because most of the people said Richard, but we got to see some of the newest cast members. They brought them into the fold. So we saw Izzy Meikle-Small, who plays Rachel Hunter, Joey Phillips, who plays Denzel Hunter, and Charles Vanderbart, who plays William. It was really good to see them, like to actually see a living, breathing person doing an interview that's related to this show, this huge show that they've been cast on, because we've only like seen bits and pieces of them. And we know that they're playing these people, but it was so good to like see the living embodiment of them, I guess. So that's really all we got on the Outlander front. I'm really thinking that in the next couple of weeks, we will probably get the official trailer. So stay tuned for that. In the Sassanac Files universe, I actually started a Patreon. The Sassanac Files has always been a independent venture. Everything that you guys hear or see from me is funded with my own money from my nine to five job. And it's really come to the point where I want to do all of these fun and creative things for you guys, but I just don't have the money to do it. So anytime that there's new music on the podcast or anytime I have to get a new microphone or I want to try a new software or I want to do the upkeep on my website or I have to pay a monthly fee to even bring the podcast to you guys with the platform that I use. So all of that costs money. And like I said, I also want to do new things with the podcast and and bring you guys a more interactive experience. So I realized that it was time for me to start a Patreon. It's not required. I'm still obviously going to have all of these podcasts available for you guys like I normally would. However, some of the things that you get if you are a member of TSF Obsassinax, my private Facebook group that I do all of my live podcasting in, some of the stuff that you get in there is now going to be moving to Patreon. I'm still going to be recording all of my live episodes, my actual podcast episodes that I do either by myself or with a guest. They're still going to record in there and you'll still be able to watch and participate all of my Droughtlander book clubs and countdown to a new season episodes, things like that are still going to be there. The things that are going to be moving to Patreon are my knee-jerk reactions. So when season seven kicks up, I will be doing a 20 to 30 minute live broadcast every week, the Friday that the episode comes out. So it'll come out on Thursday night. I'll probably watch it Thursday night. And then I will jump on Patreon Friday evening when I get home from work and do my knee-jerk reaction. So you will only have access to my initial thoughts on the episode if you are a Patreon. I will also be doing monthly blog posts. The blog posts will have all kinds of topics ranging from top performances of the season to behind the scenes information on filming locations to additional information and blogs on the history of what actually happened in that time that Outlander is covering. So for instance, I will be doing a blog on the Battle of Culloden and what actually happened at the Battle of Culloden versus what Outlander advertised it to be. Um, and I'll be doing stuff like that for all the history of 
Outlander eventually, like the regulation movement and all of these battles that we're going to start seeing taking place in season seven and season eight. If you do the Obsassin Act tier, which is the lowest tier, it's only $5 a month. You will get all of my show notes. So I'm going to release them a couple at a time over the course of each week. So one to three times a week, depending on what else I've got going on for Patreon and the Sassanac files that week. I will release my show notes for the podcast. So I take notes, like copious notes, very thorough notes whenever I podcast, but not all of that stuff makes the cutting room floor. So this is your chance to kind of see what I think about certain things. And also, I think it's a perfect time to do it and to kind of read through them because everybody's doing their rewatches for season seven. So there's no way that I'm going to have all six seasons worth of notes out by the time season seven airs. But um, I should have the first couple, well, at least season one out, um, maybe part of season two's notes out. Um, But like I said, there'll be one released every couple of days. And then you also will have advanced access to all new episodes of the Sassanac Files. And if I choose to go with sponsorship in the future or have ads playing in my podcast, you will always be able to access ad-free versions of the podcast there on my Patreon. I have two more tiers. You can go and check it out. I will post the link to my Patreon with this podcast so that you can go and and see what it's all about. I really hope you'll join me. Like I said, I've got lots of fun stuff scheduled, so I hope you'll check it out. And thanks for your support in advance. With all of that, I'm going to wrap up for the week. You guys stay safe out there and I will chat to you later. Bye. Bye.